0: Listening to the PGX for Pharmacists Podcast, part of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Pharmacogenomics is the study of how genes affect a person's response to drugs. This revolutionary science combines pharmacology and genomics to develop effective, safe medications and doses that will be tailored to a person's genetic makeup. There's no better healthcare provider position to leverage the analytical power of pharmacogenomics to provide more effective medication therapies and outcomes than a clinical pharmacist. pharmacogenomics is still at that position and that point within the healthcare stratosphere that we need continuing expertise to bring data to the table so that it can finally be used in everyday life it's it's still science fiction to say a baby can be born you prick their toe you get some blood, and you register for the rest of their lives what medications will or will not break down, metabolize in their system as intended, as a design. My name is Todd Uri. I'm the founder of the Pharmacy Podcast Nation and the Pharmacy Podcast Network. We had a podcast that we launched about two and a half, three years ago in partnership with a couple different hosts, but Ken Sternfeld really helped us to take it to another level. It was called PGX for Pharmacists. You can find all those episodes at pgx4rx.com. That's pgx4rx.com. And I have wanted to resurrect and build out new content for PGX for Pharmacists for some time. I'm so blessed to be in the space that we are because I get to stand back and watch The rock stars of the pharmacy industry come in and really bring some amazing content to the table. Becky Winslow is one of those champions and one of my heroes just in the space of pharmacogenomics. Dr. Becky Winslow, welcome back to the Pharmacy Podcast Nation.
1: Thank you, Todd, for inviting me to host this podcast, uh, the PGX for Pharmacists podcast, and Thank you, audience members, for joining us as we discuss a very noteworthy topic in the pharmacogenomics industry, and that is 23andMe's recently FDA-approved pharmacogenomics tests. Like Todd said, my name is Dr. Becky Winslow. Um, Why am I qualified to talk to you about pharmacogenomics and 23andMe's recently FDA-approved pharmacogenomics tests? Um, I'm a PharmD with 22 years of experience in clinical pharmacy and pharmacy operations management. I earned my Test to Learn Pharmacogenomics Certificate in 2017. I also earned a certification to teach the Test to Learn program in 2017. And I have spent seven years of independent consulting work in the pharmacogenomics industry, during which I assisted clients with determining which commercial pharmacogenomics tests and pharmacogenomics laboratories uh, ancillary services best suited the needs of their PGX program. And I've also worked uh, with multiple laboratories and clinicians to actually integrate pharmacogenomic data into medication therapy management. My most recent qualification for talking about this subject is research on the FDA's oversight into pharmacogenomic testing and the effect that it has had on the pharmacogenomics market and what exactly does FDA approval of 23andMe's pharmacogenomics tests mean to us as clinicians. Today, I'm joined by a superstar from St. John's University. My co-host will be Caitlin Marshall and she's going to introduce herself now.
2: Hi everyone, thanks for having me today. My name is Caitlin Marshall and I'm a fourth year pharmacy student at St. John's University. I've been working under mentorship from Dr. Winslow on pharmacogenomics research, specifically in the area of 23andMe's pharmacogenomics tests and the different pathways they utilize to earn FDA approval. I'm excited to be here today and for our discussion. Thanks, Caitlin.
1: So let's jump right in and let's look at our main objective for this podcast. Um, We want you, the listener, to gain a better understanding of which regulatory bodies actually have jurisdiction over laboratory developed tests, such as pharmacogenomics tests, Um, Which regulatory body has oversight into pharmacogenomics tests? Why 23andMe gaining FDA approval for their pharmacogenomics tests is noteworthy. And how might one address a 23andMe pharmacogenomics report presented by a patient in a clinical setting such as ambulatory care or community pharmacy? Before we dive into the meat of our discussion, we're going to answer a question that was submitted by an audience member, and I think it's a great preface to what we're going to talk about. The audience member wanted to know if 23andMe is HIPAA compliant. This is a very important question, and I'm sure there's more than one audience member who'd like to know this answer. So I'll begin by saying that uh, 23andMe is not a healthcare provider as defined by HIPAA statutes and therefore 23andMe is not bound to HIPAA. 23andMe is not considered a covered entity either and therefore it's not required to use the same protections for genetic information the way a hospital or your doctor would. Now with this being said. 23andMe does provide direct-to-consumer genetic tests, and once a direct-to-consumer genetic testing company enumerates its intent to protect the privacy of those submitting genes to it, it is contractually bound to those policies.
2: Caitlin, could you expand on this idea for our audience? Sure. So that is true. 23andMe isn't bound to any of the specific confidentiality requirements of HIPAA but the organization does have a set of safeguards that they use to protect their customers' genetic information. So some of these safeguards can be seen in their encryption of customer data. They also limit the um, amount of personnel personnel that are able to access this information. And along with those two safeguards, they also created a security management system, which is certified under international recognized standards. So these all protect their customers. Something of note, however, is that they provide transparency within their privacy policy as well. So they outline the information that they collect along with how they use it and then who they share this information with. Um, That being said, the company is able to change or update their privacy policy at any time. So the company just needs to post a notice on the policy itself and then they're able to change the commitment that has been relied upon by its customers. Um, the bottom line is that although there are safeguards in place for privacy protection, that the consumer should really remain vigilant in regularly accessing and understanding the privacy policy. Thanks, Caitlin, for uh,
1: digging deeper into um, whether 23 Me adheres to HIPAA and what their actual privacy policies are. Now that we've uh, covered that topic, let's actually dig into 23andMe's FDA-approved pharmacogenomics test um, and why it's noteworthy that they've gained FDA approval for their PGX test. We all know that the United States relies on the FDA to protect public health by ensuring the safety, the efficacy, and security of human and veterinary drugs, biological products, medical devices, our nation's food supply, cosmetics, and products that emit radiation. Caitlin, do these protections by the FDA currently extend to laboratory developed tests such as pharmacogenomics tests?
2: So these specific FDA regulations, they do differ between laboratory developed tests and the direct-to-consumer tests. So just for some background for our listeners, the laboratory developed tests are diagnostics that are developed, validated, and performed within individual laboratories. So these are used in-house and they cannot be used commercially um, or they cannot be distributed to other laboratories. So these laboratory tests, such as pharmacogenomics tests, they do not directly fall under FDA regulation. Instead, they fall under the regulation from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, specifically the Clinical Laboratory Improvement Amendments, known as CLIA.
1: So could you detail a little bit more
2: about CLIA? Why are they important? Can you tell us more about them? Sure. Um, CLIA establishes quality standards for any laboratory testing that is used on humans. So they ensure the accuracy and reliability of the results that these tests gain. So these standards are required for clinical laboratories to be certified by CMS before they can accept any human samples for diagnostic testing. And approximately 260,000 laboratory entities are held to the strict personnel quality control and proficiency testing regulation.
1: So CLIA is very critical to the laboratory um, testing industry and um, they actually regulate Um, laboratory-developed tests such as pharmacogenomics. So let's take a look back into the past and what happened in 2013 that somewhat disrupted the PGX test industry and um, called to question a lot of labs and what, what their future held as far as producing pharmacogenomics tests.
2: Sure. In 2013, the FDA sent out cease and desist warning letters to different pharmacogenomics labs, including 23andMe. So in brief, these letters told 23andMe to stop marketing their saliva collection kit and their personal genome genome service on the ground that it was an unapproved and uncleared service. So it noted that because of its lack of approval or clearance, it was both adulterated and misbranded under the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetics Act. And because of this, the distribution of these devices was actually a federal crime. So it was clear that the FDA's expectations had not been met. However, they did not provide any clear and concise guidelines for direct-to-consumer pharmacogenomics companies to follow to meet these expectations. Uh, Prior to 2013, direct-to-consumer pharmacogenomics companies had tried to claim laboratory-developed testing status which is not regulated by the FDA, but ultimately the FDA determined that they did not meet the same criteria.
1: I can certainly understand how this disrupted uh, the industry and caused a lot of questions. It was at this point that some laboratories actually stopped producing pharmacogenomics tests, correct, Caitlin?
2: That's right. At this point, many pharmacogenomics labs, such as Innova, they ceased their pharmacogenetics testing altogether. Um, 23andMe, however, they decided to stay the course and work with the FDA towards approval.
1: So since laboratory-developed tests, such as PGX, are not regulated by the FDA, what steps did 23andMe follow to gain FDA approval? Was there an already established
2: pathway that the laboratory-developed tests somehow fell under? That's a great question. So to gain the FDA approval, 23andMe needed to prove a few things. So first they had to prove analytical validity, which proved that their tests that they were marketing were in fact accurate and reliable. They also had to prove clinical validity, which demonstrated that the results they obtained from these tests could successfully predict a certain state of health. They also had to prove the claims that they advertised were true and not misleading to customers, And of greatest importance, they had to prove that their users could comprehend the implications of their test results. So in particular, um, they needed to understand what a negative result really meant. Um, For example, a consumer may have received a negative result for a problematic variant but this does not mean that they're at 0% risk factor for certain conditions. For instance, environmental factors and untested genes may also contribute towards certain conditions. So they utilize already established pathways to gain this approval. Okay, that makes
1: sense. If you're offering a direct-to-consumer test, you would definitely want the end user to understand uh, or comprehend the test results that they receive. Um, but from the way it sounds, the analytical validity, clinical validity, that was basically the same as what CLIA requires from pharmacogenomics labs. So let's look at those uh, specific processes that 23andMe followed to gain the FDA approval. What, what are those called and what did the pathways entail?
2: Um, so, although 23andMe was a novel idea, they gained authorization through already established pathways. So, first, they gained authorization through the de novo pathway. And most recently, they gained 510K clearance for one of their metabolism reports. So, in the de novo pathway specifically, it provides an alternative pathway for medical devices that don't currently have a predicate on the market. So uh, traditionally, new medical devices get default classifications as a Class three medical device. This means that they must undergo pre-market approval unless the manufacturer can demonstrate the n- new device is substantially equivalent to a predicate device that's already on the market. So to put this in perspective, a Class three medical device happens to be the same category as a pacemaker. Now, an at-home genetics test should not face the same scrutiny that a pacemaker does when trying to earn approval. This is where the de novo pathway comes in. So it recognizes that yes, this product is novel. No, there's nothing like it on the market yet, but it really should be treated as a class one or class two medical device based on the associated risks and the clinical implications. So 23andMe was able to prove that their device was of class two risk factor and with special controls, the FDA found that there was reasonable assurance of safety and efficacy to um, approve the device. So what I hear you saying is
1: that 23andMe actually followed the pathway to gain approval for medical devices. Um, one pathway being de novo approval and one being 510K. So could you elaborate for us what difference, what's the difference between de novo approval and 510K approval? And why does it matter?
2: So, both of these pathways are established pathways to bring a medical device to market. The de novo specifically has a focus on risk mitigation. So, when 23andMe gained approval through this pathway, they had to include certain caveats to ensure safety and user comprehension. 510K, on the other hand, the main focus is proving substantial equivalence to a predicate device. So the premise behind this is that if a company can prove that their device has the same technological characteristics and labeling as an already legally marketed device um, that is proven to be safe and effective, that this new device has reasonable assurance to also be safe and effective.
1: So what is the benefit to 23andMe Uh, in obtaining the 510K approval for just one gene and two drugs when they already had de novo approval for eight pharmacogenes, pharmacogenes and 33 variants?
2: So although they only obtained the approval for one gene and two drugs, there is benefit to the 510K in this situation. So in August, they gained the 510K approval for their specific drug metabolism report. For Sip2C19, so this action updated the previous de novo approval, and it removed the need for any confirmatory testing on this specific report. So this action allowed 23andMe to report interpretive drug information for two medications associated with Sip2C19. Uh, they are Clopidogrel and Citalopram. So this 510k approval is significant because it recognizes that the accuracy and the of the test variance detection, and also the clinical validity of the pharmacogenomic associations.
1: Okay, so for our listeners who may not be familiar with the term predicate, um, please define predicate for us in terms of a lab test seeking FDA approval. And how about providing us with an example of a predicate?
2: Sure. A predicate is a legally marketed device that can be used as a point of comparison for new medical devices that are seeking approval. So the predicate has the same intended use and the technological characteristics of the device you're trying to bring to market. So in this case of 23andMe, it's interesting to note that medical devices that are brought through the de novo pathway can eventually be used as a predicate device for other devices um, being brought to market as a 510k. So for 23andMe, they really are the pioneers of this pathway for direct-to-consumer genetic testing, and they've paved the way for other direct-to-consumer companies to follow in their footsteps towards FDA approval.
1: So what I hear you saying is that um, 23andMe has opened the door, they've paved the pathway, and in fact, other pharmacogenomics labs could actually use their tests as a predicate for gaining approval um, 510K approval for their pharmacogenomics tests. That's, that's very important information to the industry. Let's take a deeper dive now into the technical aspects of 23 Me's pharmacogenomics test, and let's take a look at how it compares to other pharmacogenomics lab tests that have not gained FDA approval. Um, let's start with the FDA-approved tests. Let's start with the genes included on the test. Can
2: you tell me about those? Definitely. So within the FDA approved test, there are eight pharmacogenes included. So these are all supported by CIPIC guidelines as well.
1: Okay. And just for our audience's um, benefit, who is CPIC and what relationship do they have to pharmacogenomics tests?
2: CPIC is the Clinical Pharmacogenetics Implementation Consortium. So they work to not only evaluate the clinical evidence that supports the gene drug pairings, but they also translate the information into actionable prescribing decisions. And then they publish these decisions in their free guidelines for use in, um, in practice. So the establishment of this clinical validity between the gene-drug pairings actually develops the clinical utility in practice and ultimately furthers their use. So
1: CPIC plays a very important role in the actual implementation of pharmacogenomics into practice, so their work is very critical. Um, What variants does 23andMe include on their tests?
2: 23andMe includes 33 variants, and these are all, for the most part, high levels of evidence backing them.
1: I'm glad you brought up the subject of levels of evidence um, and high versus low. What is the clinical significance of a pharmacogenomics laboratory, including low level of evidence, drug gene interactions on the test? Um, And and let's start by actually defining what is a level of evidence and and what does it have to do with pharmacogenomics or any evidence-based practice?
2: Sure, the levels of evidence are defined based on the levels of research to support the gene-drug interactions and the different clinical annotations that come from the interactions. So low levels of evidence don't have that strong backing from several randomized controlled research studies that high levels of evidence would require. Um, They may be supported by only weak or incidental information, or it may be a sign that further research is needed to enhance the confidence in these claims. So within the evidence-based healthcare practice, it's really important that providers are making their decisions based on the highest possible levels of evidence. This ensures the highest quality of care being given to patients. Um, So clinical decisions should should not be made based on low levels of evidence, just like how any other medical decision would not be based on something with low evidence. An example of this is a cardiologist that go that is treating hypertension. They would do this based on the national consensus guidelines for the treatment of hypertension. If they don't follow these guidelines, they need to be able to defend their treatment decisions. So these gene-drug interactions are no different. They require the highest level of evidence to support their decisions. That was an
1: excellent um that was an excellent way to describe um, the levels of evidence for gene-drug interactions and why they're important. Can you provide us with an example gene-drug interaction from the tests that most of our audience members could appreciate?
2: Of course. A medication that most of our listeners will probably be familiar with is the anticoagulant warfarin. So we all know that the metabolism of this medication can be affected by a multitude of different factors. One of these factors can be attributed to the variant CYP2C9 alleles. Um, These are associated with lower clearance of warfarin and subsequently require patients to have a, a lower daily warfarin dose. So this is the only gene within the 23andMe pharmacogenomics test that has a correlation to the medication warfarin.
1: Okay, what are the implications of only testing for CYP2C9 for warfarin when there are other um, genes and variants that are important in warfarin's metabolism?
2: I'm happy you brought this up. Um, So although testing for CYP2C9 is very helpful, it's not the only gene that impacts metabolism. So for example, v c one is also a gene that is commonly tested for in correlation with warfarin metabolism, but it's not found in this test. Along with that gene is CYP4F2, which also has a correlation with warfarin. So when you start to compare the content of 23andMe's test with the other commercially available lab tests, you start to see that there are some limitations within the content it provides. So with this limited content, um, the consumers are not really getting the full picture of their genetic profile, which does have significant potential for higher rates of false negative results coming from this test.
1: So I equate this to uh, patients who who also took 23andMe's uh, breast cancer screening test. There was quite a bit of discussion about this test being uh, direct to consumers on the market, because uh, 23andMe doesn't test for all of the genetic variants that can lead to breast cancer. So there was concern that consumers might have false hopes that they would not um, have breast cancer when in fact they weren't tested for all of the variants that could actually lead to breast cancer. So. I'm glad you pointed this out because it's very applicable to pharmacogenomics as well as it was to breast cancer screens. So let's take a look at um, what, what do we do? What does a clinician do? If a patient shows up in the clinical practice setting with a 23andMe pharmacogenomics test report and either ask you to explain the results or they might even ask, you to contact their doctor to change their drug therapy? Or even more concerning, what if the patient has already changed their drug therapy based on their 23 uh, me pharmacogenomics test result?
2: That's a really interesting idea to explore. So the case scenario may actually be more common as we see a rise in the popularity of these at-home genetic tests. So since community pharmacists are highly accessible healthcare providers, they really need to be prepared for these types of questions that may come about from a direct-to-consumer at-home test. So first, it's important that they are that they ensure the patients understand the benefits and limitations within each test. So 23andMe's direct-to-consumer pharmacogenomics tests are an affordable and accessible option for patients, but it's crucial to convey that they do not um, they cannot be used to take the place of medical care, and they cannot be used to take medical care within their own hands. So, this information should ideally be used as a tool to improve conversations between the patient and their doctors, not as a replacement for professional medical care altogether. So, if your patient presents to your pharmacy with their test results, They need to be pointed into the direction of further confirmatory testing from a CLIA approved lab. This ensures that they're getting correct results and a more extensive panel of genes and variants so they have a better idea of their genome. The only exception to this is with the CYP2C19 metabolism report for clopidogrel and citalopram. These tests do not require any confirmatory testing, but it also should not be used to change medication therapies without consulting their doctor. So they should still be encouraged to seek medical professional opinions to ensure they fully understand the implications of the results.
1: Thanks for sharing that with us, Caitlin. Um, Those are critical points that the audience certainly should be aware of. So let's just recap our our discussion. Um, First of all, 23andMe winning de novo and 510k FDA approval for their pharmacogenomics test is very noteworthy because it's the first direct-to-consumer pharmacogenomics test to win FDA approval. However, let's think about this. FDA approval of a pharmacogenomics test is currently not necessary. Um, And the FDA approval doesn't actually signify that the test is any more analytically valid, clinically valid, and or clinically useful in clinical practice, no more so than other CLIA-approved pharmacogenomics tests. What is critical to determining if a pharmacogenomics test is clinically valid is if the test is CLIA-certified. CLIA is the organization that has jurisdiction over laboratory-developed tests, including pharmacogenomics tests, and they regulate for clinical validity. In fact, CMS recently abruptly restricted the Food and Drug Administration's ability to require pre-market review of laboratory-developed tests through guidance and other informal communications. So this statement has left industry players scrambling to figure out how this impacts their diagnostic regulatory strategies and calls into question if the Food and Drug Administration's approval of 23andMe's test is as noteworthy as we may have thought it was. So I agree, Caitlin. While not required for a pharmacogenomics test to be clinically validated, 23andMe earning FDA approval for a direct-to-consumer pharmacogenomics test is a step forward in patients advocating for those tests and their healthcare.
2: We would like to acknowledge Dr. Jeanette McCarthy and the Global Medical Device Podcast. And we would like to thank everyone for joining us today. And we hope we broadened your knowledge about 23andMe's FDA-approved pharmacogenomics tests and its potential impacts on patients and clinicians.
1: So if you have any further questions on this topic, please contact Caitlin or I on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you.
0: Hey, I want to thank you both for providing such amazing information and updates to us. We really have um, had listeners request a dig into where are we with pharmacogenomics right now. So the technical information that you've both provided today, um, uh, Becky, was was greatly appreciated. Caitlin, thank you so much for providing us uh, additional insights. We're going to ask listeners to uh, send questions to us. Um, Please uh, look at the show notes for contact information to get in touch with uh, with Becky. And if you want to tweet us, if you want to reach out to us, to the show, we can always get information to either of our uh, co-hosts today. And, and and that would be at Pharmacy Podcast on Instagram and at Pharmacy Podcast on uh, Twitter. And you can find us on LinkedIn as well. But I want to thank you both.
2: Thank you, Todd. Yeah, thank you for having us.
0: You're very welcome. You're listening to the PGX for Pharmacists podcast. You can find all the episodes at PGX4RX.com. And as always, we thank you for listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network.